Great to have you along for Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Michael Farquhar is a former writer and editor at The Washington Post. He's the author of Bad Days in History, a gleefully grim chronicle of misfortune, mayhem, and misery for every day of the year, which he has followed up with a sequel, More Bad Days in History, the delightfully dismal day-by-day saga of ignominy, idiocy, and incompetence continues. Welcome to Constant Wonder, Michael. Thank you, Tannery. Glad to be here. (laughs) Now, how bad are these bad days in your books? I I don't really want to read about the worst things that humans have done to each other. And I don't want to write about them. Um, the, The goal in both books was to keep it on the lighter side of mayhem and misery. Um, so the worst you're going to hear about the Nazis is that they, uh, a Nazi having a bad day versus the atrocities and genocide and stuff like that. We're not, we're not here for that. It's, um, it's embarrassing moments. It's uncomfortable moments um, among famous figures in history. So we, uh, it's lighter, but it's, um, the, the beautiful part of it is that it sound, some of these stories are so unbelievably sounding that they can't be true, yet they are. Right <laughs> there out of the pages of history. The history you never really learned in history class is how I describe them. Mm. Yeah, so I want to start with one that it's not too heavy. Um, in fact, it's, it's weightless, maybe we could say. Um, this is astronauts in space, and I think this was interesting to me because— I know they try to prepare for every contingency in space, and, I mean, they have to go to the bathroom, they have to sleep, they have to eat. Um, We we had some rookie astronauts who got sick, and you write about this because um, they weren't really on the up and up about it. That's right. This is, uh, you might call it the post-walking-on-the-moon era, where everything was semi uh, let down. I mean, nobody was quite as tuned in. Unfortunately, the world was tuned in on November 16th, 1973, when this astronaut, uh, William Pogue, uh, got queasy. And the irony is they called him Iron Belly uh, from his Air Force experience. Uh, He couldn't get sick, but space did a job on him. So he threw up a little bit, and the other guys... We're like, what are we going to do? This will throw uh, NASA into a tiz if we um, if we tell them that uh, you threw up. Did they think that it might make them turn around or something or it just it it just requires a lot of reporting, um, Mm. a lot of data analysis. Uh, I mean, they're they're monitoring everything Mm. uh, from Houston. So these guys decided, well, the the path of least resistance may be, uh, let's just shut up about it. Just keep it between you, me, and the couch. Well, the couch wasn't the only one listening. They forgot that everything they said was being broadcast into control in in Houston. (laughs) So one of the most famous astronauts in history, Alan Shepard, who was running this mission by this point, got on the on the radio with them and go, really stupid guys, really dumb. And they admitted it and owned up to it. But a month later, they um, they went on a little mini strike up in space because they were so sick of all the hard work. And that they staged this strike, and that was the last well, time. What do you mean? What ever... do you mean hard work? I mean. It doesn't. How much can you do up in space? (laughs) They're busy doing experiments, Mm. monitoring uh, space station stuff. Uh, It was the the schedule was relentless. They barely had time to look at the wonders outside the window. It was awful. And instead of maybe perhaps negotiating a little uh, downtime, they just said enough. Turned off all radios and uh, and went on. A mini strike, and needless to say, none of the three were ever uh, sent to space again. <laughs> oh. it, it wasn't their candy shop after all. <laughs> it really wasn't. Uh, <laughs> although if, if the the schedule really was, I mean, you'd want to strike too. 
if you're up in space and you can't, you barely have time to uh, inhale the wonders of what's up there, uh, there's a problem. And that's the way they felt. But uh, NASA, Houston, obviously felt completely different. <laughs> <laughs> I want to um, get to a more serious story here for a minute. We're going to go back in history to a couple of the founding fathers. And we'll start with um, Thomas Paine. And, of course, he's, you know, with the musical Hamilton, people are kind of recognizing his name a little more as the author of Common Sense. Um, and and he has so he proved himself in the American Revolution, but then he um, finds himself in trouble o- over in France. Will you kind of fill in the story from there? Sure. Uh, Tom Paine was, uh, if he's not the most... Uh notable of the founders, he's probably among the most influential, because in addition to common sense, which was the kind of the rallying cry for the revolution against Britain, he followed that up in the early days of the uh, Revolutionary War with the American crisis, when the the, uh, American forces were being defeated and in despair, and he really, really rallied uh, everybody to get back, keep your eye on the prize. And uh, he was he was a phenomenal writer, a phenomenal thinker and well respected among all the uh, among all the founders. So um, a matter of fact, George Washington had him ride by his side when they uh, entered New York after the British evacuated. But Tom Paine was a universalist. He wasn't just uh, about American freedom. He was about freedom across the world. So he marches over to France during that revolution, which is a different sort of trouble for him. He gets, uh, he doesn't speak French, but he's a member of the, uh, of the national assembly over there after the, um, after the fall of the monarchy and advocates for not beheading the king and queen, which was a huge mistake because the reign of terror is just kicking off. So Tom Paine finds himself hurled into prison, Mm. into a French prison, the Luxembourg, and utterly abandoned by all his uh, American compatriots, especially George Washington. And uh, this is, this, needless to say, was upsetting to him, and it created a permanent enmity between the two. Tom Paine writes to George Washington, you folded your arms, forgot your friend, and became silent. Mm. Literally, nobody lifted a finger for him, including Washington. And was his life really in danger, do you think? Yeah, the guillotine was hanging right over his head, Mm. and everyone knew it. This uh, this was a time where he could he uh, Payne describes it as a continual scene of horror, where every hour um, the prison is practically emptied to, um, for people headed off to have have their heads chopped off. And how and long does that go on? He's in there for a year, and miraculously, hmm. um, eventually uh, gets freed when things start simmering down in France. But it was not looking good. Um, Governor Morris, um, who was the American ambassador to France, didn't do anything to help him. Mm. And Payne, as I said, was just left seething. So he he started writing horrific things about uh, George Washington. And the vendetta lasted for the rest of his life. So when does he come back to America and when does he when does he have to be face to face? With his, uh, with these other founding, face. they okay. never saw each other again. But uh. they, um, he came back kind of as a mess, as you can imagine. If you've had a blade hanging over your head for a year in a dank pri- uh, foreign prison, um, he was kind of a drunk by this time, smelled horrific, and he was largely ignored for the rest of his life. It, it's his, you know, his legacy uh, was secured by his early work, but his later years were kind of sad and pathetic. Um, and as I said, Washington and Tom Paine never saw each other again. From compatriots to, you can't even call them enemies because I don't think it, I think it was a one-sided enmity. But um, it's very fitting for, for 
these founding fathers, none of them really got along. That's the uh, that's the great myth of American history mm-hmm. is that it was these towering figures all united in a single cause. Well, they were certainly um, rooting for the same cause, but their approaches were infinitely different and their personalities clashed horribly. Uh, most of them just couldn't stand each other. Um, rivalries all throughout that pantheon of the greats. Mm-hmm. Um, John Adams, for example, he hated just about everybody. Um, <laughs> and George Washington, certainly, even George Washington had his share of enemies. And uh, it's shocking how how much you know, we revere him now and how much he was attacked in his own day. Michael Farquhar is the author of More Bad Days in History, the delightfully dismal day-by-day saga of ignominy, idiocy and incompetence continues. And I'm sorry to say, but we're going to keep picking on George Washington. More Constant Wonder in just a moment. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Our guest today is Michael Farquhar. He's the author of More Bad Days in History, the delightfully dismal day-by-day saga of ignominy, idiocy, and incompetence continues. So um, you were talking before the break about how much George Washington was attacked in, in his own day, and you actually feature this on July 6th uh, in your book. So give us a little more um, about... His, I guess his reputation just really was in jeopardy. George Washington, one of the his biggest warnings was about the baneful effect of the spirit of party, in other words, partisan politics, which he hoped the young nation would avoid. And that was a little idealistic, mm. um, to say the least. Almost as soon as there was an America, there was a bitter partisan division. And the, if we think the press is, is vicious now, uh, the campaigns and press reports were um, way over the top back then. It, it, is, it, was, uh, it was really nasty. And George Washington just, uh, could easily have said that the press was far more of a pain than his false teeth. <laughs> they, uh, the, uh, the July 6th references to a... Um, a quote in the um, Aurora by Benjamin Franklin's own grandson. Uh, if ever a nation was debauched by a man, the American nation has been debauched by Washington. Hmm. Um, so this guy, this grandson of Franklin's, uh, was one of a sea of, of infamous scribblers, as Washington called them. And he... He remained stoic in the face of it uh, publicly. I mean, it's kind of that stoicism that we associate with him now. But behind the scenes, he was just a hornet, uh, seething with resentment at the attacks. Um, And as a matter of fact, his his farewell address, which is kind of the study in benevolence, uh, had several drafts before it was uh, it was delivered. And he's attacking everybody. Um, and in the uh, earlier drafts, in the earlier drafts, exactly. Um, he was particularly upset with Thomas Jefferson, who was supposed to be his buddy. He mm-hmm. and James Madison, you know, all for the Virginia right. rotary of, of the founders. Um, and matter of fact, so Jefferson was always kind of creating troubles behind the scenes. And kind of attacking his rivals like Hamilton and uh, Washington. So uh, Martha Washington is kind of famous for saying one of her two worst days in her life were her husband George's death and when Jefferson came to Mount Vernon afterwards to pay his respects. (laughs) He was that hurt by Jefferson. Mm. So it, um, it started from the beginning and it hasn't gone anywhere, the nastiness in public politics. In public politics, yeah. The, it's a good. Re- it's a good reminder because we do put such a gloss over <laughs> the founding fathers and George Washington, um, in particular, as and if I he had a smooth sailing, you know, self-sacrificing career, and and he was lauded by everyone. Sounds like not at all. The 
I guess it's, you're absolutely right, uh, Tannery, and I also think that maybe it's time we think of them as more fallible humans because enshrining them in marble and making them demigods really minimizes their ultimate accomplishment, you know, the United States of America. Because mm. against all uh, human nature, they came together, um, despite all their feuds and enmity. Um, look what look what they did, and I think that's the that's the miracle of these guys. They, you know, people who could not abide one another, set it aside, and uh, and created this grand experiment in democracy. Mm-hmm. Not easy. It no. wasn't easy. No. I mean, just the bo alone in the you know in Independence <laughs> Hall. Jeez, I mean, no wonder they got on each other's nerves. Yeah, I've been to Philadelphia in the summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know. I know. <laughs> That's when everybody gets packed in there in July. Ugh. Mm, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you mentioned marble, so that brings me to another story. Um, and talking about fallen humanity, I wanna I wanna talk about October sixth, which is uh, the fall of Adam. And, and this one, I want you to actually read the first few lines because um, you, you really have a fun turn of phrase there. So could you start with biblical Adam didn't get off easy? Okay. Uh, that happened on October 6, uh, 2002, with the headline, Worse Than the Apple, The Fall of Adam. Biblical Adam didn't get off easy after defying God and eating that forbidden fruit. Banished from Eden he had to resort to subsistence farming on bad soil for the remaining 600 years or so of his life. But at least he wasn't smashed to pieces. That fate was reserved for the life-size marble sculpture of him carved in the late 15th century by Tullio Lombardo. (laughs) Okay, what's, what's this statue? What happened? Well, you know, it's, it's, no one knows what happened other than uh, after closing at the New York uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, the stand upon which Adam was standing, the life-size Adam, collapsed, and uh, Adam was decapitated. Oh. Pieces of him were all over the floor, and it, um, it it looked hopeless. And this was, you know, this was an incredibly important statue. The uh, Met describes it as the most important Italian Renaissance sculpture in North America, and it was the uh, certainly one of the first full-size nudes of the era, um, laying in pieces. But the bad day of October 6th actually um, improved somewhat over many years of careful restoration. Uh, Adam was restored, not to his former glory, still flawed like the original Adam after the fall, <laughs> but barely perceptible to any casual observer. That, that's that's just a great story. I think that's just a metaphor, a great metaphor for <laughs> all of humanity. We, we can be put back together again. <laughs> yep, we'll just, you know, do a little sanding over, de- over time, a little glue, <laughs> and we'll be good as new. <laughs> Or not quite, but getting there. You're getting there. All right. Now, you take one of the most romantic spots for Valentine's Day in your book, and um, you give us <laughs> the eyesore tower on February 14th. Uh, tell, tell me why you picked that one. That's February 14th, 1887, and that is a day when all the, uh, not all, but a majority of the great uh, French literary uh, elite and artistic elite came on a full-force newspaper joint attack on the Eiffel Tower, which, as you said, we associate with love and romance and uh, an exotic destination. They thought it was a monstrosity. And they attacked it relentlessly. I mean, the the quotes about it are, I mean, they're just vicious. Uh, one of them says uh, in this in this protest that it was published in the uh, in the French newspaper that day, February fourteenth, in eighteen eighty seven. 
We shall see stretching out like a black blot the odious shadow of the odious column built up of riveted iron plates. <laughs> Another called it. Uh, I like. Uh, I like this one. I like this one. Um, it was like a gigantic black factory chimney crushing with its barbaric mass. <laughs> it's just so I, different from how we think of it. It is. It's uh, you know. It's but it's on the same by the same token. It's kind of interesting if you if you were living in a beloved city, and something like that new and that innovative uh, with, uh, was suddenly erected, uh, you might go, good God, what have they done to our landscape? Mm. Uh, and that's what these guys, this, the, none, of them, none of them could handle it. Uh, Guy de Maupassant, the, uh, the, writer, the French writer, he was particularly virulent against the Eiffel Tower, but um, one of the things that he would do is eat lunch there every day. What? And somebody said, why are, you eat, why are you eating in a place that you hate? <laughs> he goes, well, when I'm inside, I don't have to look at it. <laughs> oh, I wonder if he secretly liked it. Come on. Come on, Guy. Who do you think you're kidding? Is that what are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. That's a good theory. I like it. I don't know. Oh, Michael Farquhar, you've got two of these books. And they go through the year, give you something bad that happened every day of the year. Um, why, why did you need to write a second one? Well, Tenery, the truth of the matter is, is that I have a third one that I'm, you know, <laughs> that I've got the, all the dates ready for. I mean, human history uh, is is littered with uh, these kind of moments of embarrassing uh, or weird odd moments days and i you know, this could this could go on for for many volumes and again that's without all the heavy duty genocidal stuff this is just us being dumb humans um or having or being treated like dumb humans we uh you know our our fate is not um is not a waft through this lifetime it's a struggle and most of it's embarrassing. Not very little of it's horrific, but um, you know we all have our struggles, and this is just kind of um, a fun way of showing that the people that you've always heard about, or you have you know some kind of major role in history, shared the same exact uh, problems, but just on a large stage, on a large world stage, and mm. it's it's really. A, just so much fun to write and, and research uh, <laughs> that I, does it make two, you feel better about your own life you know if you're you would be pretty hard pressed to whine about what kind of day you're having um, without reading what somebody was doing on that same day how many years ago uh, <laughs> or what was happening to somebody on that same day yeah I think it puts I think it puts some neat perspective on our problems all right. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you, um, what's your favorite bad day? Tenery, that's hard because, uh, you know, all of these, the, the, these were the select of the select. <laughs> you know, you have to discard. There's lots of things that happen on a day-by-day -day basis. But um, I would say one of my favorites is the, this event that happened. This was a mafia summit held in New York, a, a town in New York, um, on November 14th, 1957. And the big, all the top honchos uh, from the different families, Joe Bananas Bonanno and Big Paul Castellano and Traficante, Sam Giancana, and uh, all their, uh, you know, their, their associates had gathered for this summit uh, to kind of work things out. This was a very unusual occasion, and it certainly looked unusual, all these cars parked in this small New York town to this um, policeman, Edgar Crosswell, who kind of gone, this is weird, and starts looking into it, and uh, they, they, the, the mobsters find out that there is, that there are police amassing, and they make a run for it like cockroaches, 
running through these woods in their fedoras and camel hair coats and <laughs> getting shredded by vines and tripping all over themselves, wet, miserable. Um, and it kind of, it, it, it just kind of put a massive amount of egg on their face, um, almost matched by the mud on their shoes. But the biggest embarrassment of this fiasco, this summit fiasco, was for J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, who before this never acknowledged there even was a mob. Ah. He was much more interested in uh, in uh, infiltrating, you know, the Red Menace and controlling that. And he, he uh, matter of fact, somebody, one of his agents was writing about the mob in a memo, and he just scrawls across it, baloney. Huh. So he just refused to publicly or even privately admit that they existed. Um, and so when this came out, um, it was it was a, a huge embarrassment for Hoover. So I kind of like it because it ends up with lots of uh, bad people um, getting their day. <laughs> From the good guys, the G-men, to the bad guys, the really bad guys. Um, I just, there was a, there's a great... A quote by one of the soldiers is going, these guys expect us to take a bullet and here they are running around like little girls running for their lives. We're supposed to respect them? Ridiculous. <laughs> and that's probably that's uh, the, the guy who did the Valachi uh, papers, the one who uh, eventually exposed the mob. Uh, that was probably the beginning of his loss of innocence with his uh, beloved organization. Well, this has been great fun. Thank you so much for sharing some of these bad day stories with us here on Constant Wonder. Tenery, it's been a pleasure. I, uh, I really appreciate talking to you, and uh, I hope you know people will get a little perspective on their bad days. So thank you for the time. Michael Farquhar is a former writer and editor at The Washington Post. His latest book is More Bad Days in History, the delightfully dismal day-by-day saga of ignominy, idiocy, and incompetence continues. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. One of the cool things about history is that you can slice and dice it in so many different ways— We're going to turn next away from this offbeat day-by-day tour of unfortunate events in people's lives to a fascinating exploration of just one single day, sussed out from news reports and the whole story pursued by a writer who knows how to do detective work. We'll be back with more Constant Wonder after this. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Can you tell me what happened yesterday at 3.15 p.m.? Or what about five years ago at, oh, 6.27 in the morning? These are passing moments. Most of them seem uh, very insignificant to us. But according to journalist Gene Weingarten, no moment is without significance. And just to prove the point, he took one day at random and explored the stories that crisscrossed that one revolution of the earth in its orbit. And uh, he told the whole story in his book titled One Day, The Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary 24 Hours in America. We spoke with him to find out what happened on that single random day. Both Weingarten and his editor knew that the date was random because of the way they set it up. They had restaurant customers draw out slips of paper from a hat three times once for the year, once for uh, the month, and then for the day. And the result came out as Sunday, December 28th, 1986. And no sooner had they randomly selected that date than Weingarten immediately, he he had qualms. I felt absolutely dreadful about that day, and we we felt dreadful instantly uh, because it took just a couple of seconds on a cell phone to realized that December 28th was a Sunday. Um, We knew immediately since it was December 28th that um, this was the sleepy week 
between Christmas and New Year's, all journalists know nothing happens that week. All journalists know, in addition, <laughs> that nothing happens on Sundays, um, and anything that, that did happen uh, didn't get covered because newsrooms were basically empty on Sundays. And 1986 didn't really seem like much of a historically important year to us, just, you know, immediately, intuitively. So we sat there eating clams and oysters and really grumping because we felt we had gotten the worst day of the week in the worst week of the year in a pretty bad year. Well, nobody would have known if you decided to do it over. (laughs) Well, we would have known. And the way that I say this in the book, and it is absolutely true, is that my editor, Tom Schroeder, and I, if either of us had even briefly considered suggesting a mulligan, neither of us has admitted it to the other. That's as far as I'm going to go in this explanation, but it's also literally true. We did not broach that subject, and we didn't do it. All right, let's get to some of these stories. One of the most compelling stories you tell is about a house fire in Dallas. Will you share that with us? Yeah. um, The fire broke out uh, in late morning, uh, there were two children momentarily left alone in a house. Uh, their parents had had an argument. Um, they left to hash it out. And as it happens, in those few minutes, a space heater in the children's bedroom caught on fire. Um, the call came in, the fire trucks arrived, the the fire was raging. There was some real heroism on the part of a uh, particular firefighter who knew there were children in there, who had been told there were children in there. And um, he didn't spend the extra 15 seconds to put on some oxygen masks that he was supposed to wear. He felt that literally seconds would matter. And so he wound up doing something that all firefighters know is technically, theoretically possible, but few really try. Uh, if, If you walk into a burning building and there is smoke all over the place, you can find oxygen by sucking it in from near the nozzle of the hose that you're carrying. Uh, there's a there's a fine spray around the nozzle and in it is oxygen. And that's what this guy did. Um, it probably saved a life. There were two children in there. Uh, one did not survive. The other was grotesquely burned and disfigured but alive. And um, this man passed the body out, uh, passed the child out through a window that he'd broken. Uh, Paramedics were out there. They rushed him to the hospital, and he survived. Um, He survived horribly disfigured. And the the second half of the story is what happened to this young man who essentially was forced to figure out how to live life as what many people would consider a monster. Um, and that's that's the majority of the story, figuring out how this astonishing young man, uh, really who grew up with with nothing, uh, no no advantages, and obviously one gigantic disadvantage, uh, how he wound up making a, a, an amazing life for himself um, by simply refusing to accept that he was in any way disabled. So he, his face was disfigured. Um, what other injuries did he sustain? Well, he has no hands, um, and uh, he manages. The doctors who cleaned him up as best they could wound up giving him two little points at the end of each wrist, little bone points. They, they sort of carved that, and that essentially gives him hunt and peck fingers, uh, this guy types 35 to 40 words a minute. I watched him do it, and I still don't know how he did it. Ooh. He can do it on a cell phone. Better than I do. <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, I was going to say, I cannot type 35 words per minute on a, on a cell phone. Um, 
he he is indomitable. He has forced himself. His face is is um, grotesquely disfigured. Yeah, but but you know he he also he's lost toes. Um, he has no hands, and so he also wants to be an athlete. So what does he become? He becomes a soccer player because that's mm-hmm. what you do if you have no hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and just be just embraced as a hero by his team. Um, this guy is so sure of himself um, and has such a sense of humor left even after all of this that um, on Halloween, he often works as a gargoyle in a haunted house. <gasps> Because he is absolutely the best at standing there looking like a monster and then suddenly reaching out and grabbing someone. (laughs) He loves it. He says, you know, he says, I I do this for free every day of my life. Why shouldn't I get paid on Halloween? (laughs) My goodness. Oh, and he has friends and he's social. Yeah, I should mention his name. He's Michael Anthony Green Jr. Thank you. Just an amazing, an amazing guy. Now, now this this kind of um, reporting, you know, embracing the ordinary, this is not new for you. Um, you mention in your book um, one day that you you did a project with some of your reporters at the Washington Post with a phone book. Now, but back in the day when we used phone books, you know, tell us a little bit about I that. I should explain to many of your listeners what a phone book is. But You're we'll, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll go right over that. Um, yeah, this was uh, back um, in the early 90s. I was the editor of the Sunday feature section of the Washington Post. And, you know, as, as should be clear by now uh, to your listeners, I like stunts. I don't think they're um, they're dishonest or disreputable if you do them well and if they if they wind up uncovering something dramatic about the human experience. And in this case, I, I took five of my favorite writers at the Post, feature writers, people I knew who could do this, and we went into a room and I gave them each a phone book and a nail and a hammer, and they had to hammer the nail into the phone book as deep as they want and then find the person who was at the end of that nail uh, and write a profile of him or her. Hmm. And uh, that was it. And, you know, the theory was sort of similar, that there are no ordinary people. You just need to be able to figure out their stories, that there's a story in everyone and in everything if you're clever enough to find it and skillful enough to tell it. And they just delivered five phenomenal stories. This was, in a sense, a test run for what I would do 30 years later. (laughs) Well, how did you, um, now you've got the Internet, but how did you go about collecting these stories for one day, Gene Weingarten? It depends on the story. Uh, The Internet was of enormous help. This would have been much more difficult had I done it 25 years ago. Uh, But the Internet in general was simply a source of leads. Uh, The actual story, the depth of the story, wouldn't happen until I followed the lead, found the people involved, found people associated with them, and brought them back to December 28, 1986, and then looked forward and back in time. Um, some, Some of these things... Uh, came to me because people found me. Uh, I did some publicity uh, on what I was doing, on the project that I was doing. I was on radio, and a few people found me, uh, and their stories were compelling. Um, There was one story obtained that way about a couple that met on the day, and they met at a pickup bar where each had come with a different date. And they sort of furtively noticed each other, were more interested in each other than they were with the people they came with. And they furtively exchanged phone numbers. He agreed to call her the next day. Um, he didn't call, so I 
4 o'clock in the afternoon, she called him. This was not a bashful woman. Mm-mm. And said, so you're going to take me out? And they went out. They had a good time. Went back to her house. This won't get too racy. Don't worry about it. And um, he fell asleep with his head in her lap. Nothing really happened between the two of them. She went to bed. He stayed on the sofa. Next day, he took her to his office party where they got spectacularly drunk. And um, she says to him, well, don't we love each other? And he said, yeah. And she says, well, why don't we get married? Oh, he said, that's a swell idea. <laughs> Shoot. And so she says, why don't you tell everyone? And so he stands up as best he can and announces that the lovely woman next to him and he are going to get married. And the next day, which happens to be New Year's Eve, he drives up with his belongings and moves into her house, which is the first time that he discovers, for example, that she has two children. All right. This Uh, sounds like a recipe for disaster in so many ways. Yes, exactly. It is is the ultimate recipe for disaster. The, The most irresponsible thing one can do in romance, pretty much, that I can imagine. And as you can probably guess, they're still together. Uh, it was just an amazing love story that happened in the most improbable way. And, you know, they'll tell you, we don't recommend this for people in general, but it works for us. <laughs> yeah. If my children are listening, don't you ever. Gene Weingarten, I there are some of the stories in here that are just kind of quirky. I'm curious why you included them. And um, if you just share one of them, one of them is about a weather vane. Would you tell us that story? Yeah, it's actually one of the smallest stories in the book. The ostensibly most trivial story in the book, but ultimately, like any good feature, it wound up being about something much bigger than it is. Um, This happened in Rhode Island at a small college called Roger Williams College. Um, And the best way to explain this is to start before the events of December 28th, 1986. Uh, About a half year before, the professor of historic renovations at the college, this was a real liberal arts college, and by gum they had a professor of historic renovation, and uh, (laughs) he had been given a weather vane, an old weather vane, clearly of an Indian sashem uh, holding a quiver of arrows, uh, and uh, it was clearly made in the late 1800s, and it was said to be the likeness of an Indian named Metacomet, uh, who was a Wampanoag Indian from that general area uh, back in the 1600s. And Metacomet was a warlike figure, um, greatly beloved by Native Americans, not so beloved by uh, colonists. And um, why not? What's the controversy? The controversy is that he waged war against the colonists. Um, and, and of course, they waged war against him, and there was no clear right or wrong here. But when he was killed, his body was desecrated, etc. However, that's sort of beside the fact, because this was a historically interesting weather vane. And uh, so the college decided to clean it up, fix it up. It had some bullet holes in it because over the years, yahoos with rifles will sometimes shoot at a weather vane because if you hit it a certain way, it'll spin. (laughs) And and, uh, so they cleaned it up, and they put it on top of a barn, which had already been repurposed to be a um, performing arts center. The problem, and, you know, so great. You know, they had this weather vane. It was worth great deal of money, um, up on top of the university looking down on it. Everything was fine, except 
This was a very liberal arts university. They put the word liberal in liberal arts, and immediately there arose a great controversy over whether it was appropriate to have a Native American symbol uh, on a campus that was mostly white European kids. And the kids themselves didn't really care. This was really a very early issue of cultural appropriation, but nobody used that term yet, and yet that's what they were discussing. The kids didn't much care. They they were smart and they were progressive, but um, this was an issue that didn't mean much to them. The faculty, however, were people who came of age in the 60s, and on both sides they were spoiling for a fight. And they had a fight over this. There were the anti-Vayners and the pro-Vayners. Um, <laughs> some, some professors said they would never go to that performing arts center again until the Indian was removed, etc. It got into the newspapers. It was even in the New York Times. And then something interesting happened. A kid discovered from an old catalog that this was not, in fact, Metacomet. It was Massasoit, who was Metacomet's father, and a very different kind of guy. Massasoit is famous. He was the Indian, the American, the Native American, uh, who, with his deputy, Swanto, Mm. helped the colonists through the first winters Right, um, right. Mm-hmm. He he was literally present at the most important meal in American history that first Thanksgiving, where he donated a number of freshly slain deer and what really turned it into a feast. He the argues, argument then morphed a little bit. Maybe it's more appropriate to celebrate him. Because really, when you think about it, he's an important figure in American history. Um, but the anti-Vayners had none of that. Yeah, yeah. They... Uh, they felt, in a way, this was even worse because we were taking a peaceful man and putting him up there with bow and arrow and making him look savage. And there was actually some reasonableness about both sides of this issue. And you know, had it been discussed academically in classrooms with kids there it might have contributed to cultural understanding. The problem was it was carried out entirely in the media. It became really vicious. Um, and that meant it got even more publicity. And that meant that one of the things that kept getting mentioned in the stories was that this weather vane might be worth $150,000. And that brings us back to the events of December 28th, 1986, where around 3 o'clock in the morning, there was an assault on the top of that barn. People knew how expensive the weather vane was. They also knew about the extensive measures that the college had taken to protect it, including securing it with screws with different types of heads, so they were ready with that. They brought screwdrivers with different types of heads, oh, and around 5 o'clock in the morning... Because the media had probably had obviously said, oh, and they've gone course. to great lengths doing X, exactly. Y, and Z. Oh, jeez. And so because of this controversy, they lost their weather vane. And, you know, it was a valuable lesson, but they got charged about $150,000 to deliver it. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. Well, sort of, there are many, many ironies that snake through this book, and that, that's, that's one of the little ones, but it's one that I particularly like. <laughs> Sometimes you capture an event that really reflects uh a, a larger historical moment. I wonder if you would introduce us to the Cleavers. Yeah. Um, one of the things that happened on that day was that a whole bunch of Russian emigres, people who come to the United States in search of a better life, they were from the Soviet Union, obviously, at that, that time, they were returning to the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had very cleverly this was the final 
gasping, wheezing days of the of the Cold War. And the Soviet Union had deliberately seen to it that they were all leaving on the same day so that there would be this giant crowd in uh, uh, Kennedy Airport and the media was alerted. And in terms of propaganda in the Cold War, uh, it was really dramatic. They had a whole bunch of people there talking about how the United States scared them. There was too much crime. They couldn't deal with the, uh, the, the fight over, fights over money. Uh, and it just, you know, the, 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 the Russian handlers loved that event. Among the families that were leaving were the Cleavers, K-L-E-V-E-R. And the, the media didn't really know who they were at the time, but uh, I tracked them down, and the father uh, was a famous dissident artist in Russia, and he'd left because of that. And now he was going back because of Glasnost, his belief that maybe Russia had changed in the way it was going to deal with dissidents, and mostly because he had about 100 paintings hidden in Russia that he wanted to <laughs> get reacquainted with. Mm. But he was intending to go back to Russia with his family for good. Um, his daughter, the family was very Russian, except for his daughter, his daughter, who was 16 years old, very American, spoke without an accent. And when she was being interviewed, she delivered one of the cleanest, coolest 13 seconds that I've seen on video. She said, look, I don't... I don't like how material this place is. Um, you know, you can't join a clique if you don't have 15 pair of blue jeans. Well, you know, I say I don't have 15 pair of blue jeans, even if I do, because I don't want to be judged based on my pants. It was just beautiful mm -hmm. and elegant and a, and a simple summary of what she said was wrong with the United States. The final part of the story is that this family came back, and they came back almost immediately. And they came back because of exactly why the Cold War ended. They were forced to choose between a society that seemed cold and cruel, ours, but where the possibilities for growth and success were endless, and a, a country that said they would take care of you but was basically part of this threadbare economy that wasn't working. Um, and, and the Soviets said, you have to give up your American citizenship if you're going to stay, right? Yes, they made them make a choice. Mm. And that was the interesting thing. They made the choice, and that's exactly how the Cold War ended. People made a choice. Gene Weingarten, an award-winning journalist and author of One Day, The Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary 24 Hours in America.